0: hey friends we hope this message from c3 Fort Worth helps you see Jesus like never before and if you're in or around Fort Worth we'd love to meet you on a Sunday or at one of our weekly dinner parties uh, we're gonna read this morning I'm gonna read out of Exodus chapter 3 uh, this is the uh, CSB uh, Pastor Brandon apparently likes lots of different versions uh, the NTSB the FBI SB the uh, The ESB, the BSB, I think sometimes it's the BSB. Am I allowed to say that in church, the BSB? Uh, Some of y'all will get that, some of you won't. Um, Anyways, this is is Exodus chapter 3. This is kind of a long one. This is 1 through 15. So um, Ruthie will read the short one. I'm going to read the long one. It says, um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. The priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the, bu- the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush Moses, Moses! Here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said, but remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, the Heathites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. So, because the Israelites' cry for help uh, has come to me, and I have also seen the way uh, the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And he answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. I'm going to read my scripture, but first I want to say that's such an awesome passage because everything always points back to him. It doesn't matter who we are. Who is he? Okay, I'm not going to preach, Brandon, I promise. Let's turn to, no, I'm just kidding. Okay, so 1 Peter 1 16, and this is actually from the message translation. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I am holy, you be holy.
1: Awesome. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Donnie and Ruthie, incredible worship pastors and worship leaders so thankful for them, thankful for our team, amen, so good, so, so good, I wonder if you would take inventory of your week, maybe even just yesterday, Um, it was a spring break week for us, our kids were gone half the week with my parents, we painted the house instead of went on vacation, thank you mother-in-law, and uh, a little different pattern, different rhythm, every day about three o'clock, Meredith and I would go, who's picking up the, oh, we're not doing that today. Um, and then on top of that, the sun was going down later. A lot of weird things this week. Strange rhythms, strange patterns. But I wonder if you were to take inventory of, of your week, and if I were to ask you yesterday, let's just take yesterday, for example, what percentage of your week was sacred or holy? How many? How much of your day yesterday was spiritual? And then take the other percentage because that's how this works we're only giving you two options so and how much of it was maybe you would use the word secular or profane I'm going to explain that in a minute but I just wonder if there's a there's a, a thing in your mind as I talk about your day or your week and I ask you which parts of them or how much of them was spiritual if you would have an answer for that if you would look at yesterday in any way and think holy or sacred or spiritual And I'm sure for some of us, we begin to compartmentalize those things, and maybe we begin to look at certain things that we did, or we start feeling really guilty because we can't really give a great percentage as to what might have been spiritual in our day and in our time. Let me ask you a different way. This is from um, Johnny Thompson, philosophy professor at Oxford. This this one's going to hit you a little different than the one I just asked you. How much would you sell your mother for? I know that's a I know. Just chill out, relax. I'm not gonna ask you to do that. Set a price and we'll negotiate from there. Or how much would it take for you to never see or hear from your friends again? I reckon that one would be cheaper for some of you. Or what about your dignity? What could I pay you to get rid of your dignity, your integrity? For most people, there are certain things in life that just cannot be given a price tag. There are things in our life that we set apart from the rest of the humdrum world to be elevated to a special status. These are the objects that we value as the highest goods in the world, ones which cannot be replaced or exchanged. They are sacred. He closes with us. He says, the question is, do we even care about the sacred anymore. Emile Durkheim kind of wrote um, kind of his main book, but he wrote many. He he was kind of a foundational for sociology, late 1800s. He wrote this book called uh, The Elementary Forms of Religious Life. And he introduced this concept of the sacred and the profane. The sacred being those things that we do to honor a God or a religion or some sort of belief. what The sacred things that we do, and the profane being clearly the opposite of that. The things we do that disrespect or lack honor in regards to a certain belief or God. So the question continues to go, what, what would you sell mom for? What are the things that don't have a price tag for you? What are the things that, don't, that you can't possibly make an exchange for? That's what sacred means. To say It is sacred is to say there is no exchange rate. There is no way I could come to you and go to, you know, and trade my dollar for your peso. There's no no exchange rate for the sacred things in my life. There are things that I am not willing to exchange with you for any amount or any value. And when we do, what happens? We actually, no matter what the rate is, we are diminishing the value of it in our lives. And, and, and the sacred and profane idea, this, this dichotomy of living, it, it is Im- actually important to the way we live. Emile Durkheim, not a believer. The, pro- the, the professor from Oxford, not a believer. These are not people who are going, yeah, th- I'm saying this so that I can then tell you that you should believe in Jesus. That's not where they're coming from. In fact, Emile Durkheim's whole uh, theory, his whole idea, is that, that most societies, if not all successful societies, have something that they view as sacred. They view some things, some behaviors, some ideas, some ideals as sacred, which is why, in his estimation, religion has always played an important part in the development and evolution of society. It has, ever, it has never, ever not been present in successful society. Now, we're not saying that they've all been the same or believed the same things or somehow c- counted the same things sacred, but there's always been some element, something in life that is... C- has been sacred to them. You might in your family or maybe in your friendships have something that is sacred. There is no exchange rate for it. Nothing you could give me would make me give it up. And In fact, the science in the, around sacred things is, is fairly important. A study published in the Journal of Psychology of Religion and Spirituality studied 3,000 participants, and they were asked uh, the frequency with which they generally experience Sacred moments in their everyday life. Specifically, individuals were instructed to rate on a scale of one to five, being one not at all or five very often, how often they experienced one of these things. A moment that felt apart, set apart from everyday life. A moment that was really real. A moment in which all distractions seemed to melt away. A deep sense of connection with someone or something. A sense of uplift or just plainly, a sacred moment. Results from this research showed that individuals' experiences of sacred moments predicted higher levels of positive emotions and a greater presence of meaning, as well as lower levels of perceived stress, depressed distress and anxious distress. Jonathan Haidt, a University of Virginia psychologist and a liberal academic, wrote this. The key to understanding tribal behavior is not actually economical. It's not money. It is sacredness. We've seen a lot of that over the last few years. What do we value as sacred? We are willing to do anything to make sure it stays sacred. And we've all been on one side of the argument about what we should or should not view as sacred. And we've all been on one side of the argument about throwing or being mad or being angry at something for what someone else valued as sacred. See, sacredness matters. We don't like to talk in those terms. We don't like to bring it up in that way because that might give us some sense of religiousness or religiosity. But the reality is, is that there are holy and sacred things. And yes, we can make certain things, like the wrong things, sacred we can put the flag over the cross that's a zinger i understand we can put self-autonomy over god-fearing kingdom making king on the throne faith the rise of the modern self one of the kind of the pinnacles of book writing over the last several decades just in the last couple years written It talks about the rise of the modern self, how we have made ourselves the primary focus of everything. And there is a reason that a result of that is actually frustration, worry. anxiety. Because we not only have we focused on ourselves, but we have made ourselves the source of all joy, the source of all provision, the source of all success. There's no... Of course we end up being more anxious and depressed than ever before. Of course, And I'm not saying that's just one, that's the only reason. I'm just telling you that, that sometimes we dig deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into self. We actually become so obsessed with ourselves. One of the ways I would counsel people when they're dealing with uh, hurt and pain is to do our best on a daily basis to ask someone else how they're doing. And it is not to ignore or to diminish what we're feeling, but it is to take our eyes sometimes off of ourselves and value the dignity of other people so that in that we can begin to realize that we're human again and relationship matters. There are sacred things in life. There are holy things in life. Now, one of the big movements over the last couple decades, one that I actually love, is the, is the breaking down of the wall, the wall between the sacred and the secular. If you follow Mary, John Mark Homer or if you, if you follow really any, any theologian uh, lately, there's been this realization that for too long we had made this divide between the sacred things, the spiritual things, and the secular things. Secular meaning kind of like earthy, that kind of deal, and, and spiritual clearly we're talking more about heaven or religion or, or belief. And we've, we've separated those things so distinctly that we've treated Sunday one way and Monday a different way. And we, we, we think that what I'm doing up here is spiritual, but what you're doing on Monday isn't. I remember, I think it was with Jerry. I was talking with Jerry at dinner party. We didn't have kids, so we went out every night this week. And um, Wednesday night we went to Will and Claire's dinner party. Beautiful time. We just, we just so enjoyed it. We were not chasing our children around. It was, oh, it was so beautiful. But I love my kids. Hey, bub, I love you. Oh, he's got headphones on. He didn't hear me. Um. So, he, uh, so, but I remember we were talking about, um, talking about just this, this act of being together and having a meal was a spiritual act. But here, let me push back on this a little bit. Even though I'm a subscriber to this idea, one of, the, one of the, I wouldn't call it a danger, but one of the things that can happen when you begin to break down that wall between the sacred and the secular is that you can begin to make the sacred more secular rather than the secular more sacred. You can begin to make heaven look more like earth rather than earth look more like heaven. Does that make sense? We can begin to take things that should be high in value and lower their value rather than think, take things that we tend to lower in value and raise their value. So prayer just becomes a thing that happens. No. Yeah, it does, but No. It matters. Coming together like this, it's not just checking it off the list. This is a a sacred thing. Why does all of this matter? Well, the question that was asked at the very beginning, not the one about your mom, but the, the, the question still matters. Do we value, do we care about sacred things? Or have we made everything So mundane, so profane, not even in a negative sense, but just in the sense that it does not give honor that it is needed to give, that we've made everything so earthy that we've missed heaven in them all. In our relationships, when we wake up, so here's my question. Yesterday, how much of what you did was spiritual, was sacred, was holy? Probably more of it than you realize, and that's what I'm trying to remind you. That the relationships you have with people, more sacred than you think. The gathering together of the saints, more sacred than you think. The waking up in the morning at 6.30 a.m., jumping on a Zoom call. Come on, we're a t- couple weeks into Lent. I'm remind you, jump on that Zoom call. It's been awesome. John led it Friday. Uh, it's so good. It really has been good. Jump online. You can find all the info. More sacred than you think. Let us not allow in our desire To bring these things together, which is healthy and good, to allow the sacred things to become more secular, let us become people who allow the secular things to become more sacred so that when we enter into those moments, we treat them differently. So why does all this matter? Well, because Moses. Moses, who is a, a type of Christ, he is a deliverer. He is going to set the people free. But the first few years of Moses' life did not work out the way we expected. First, he was saved from all the children being killed because Pharaoh was... All these were pretty good for the people of Israel until this one Pharaoh showed up, decided to want to kill everybody and wanted to really uh, subjugate these people. And, and so he, 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 he tries to kill all the children because he's worried about what's going on. That they're going to be too powerful. And so Moses gets saved and he ends up in the palace of the princess. So Moses' first 40 years was as an uh, Israelite in the palace of the Egyptians, the one saved from being murdered He's in the palace. He's now beginning, and some would say he was going to be the prince. About 40 years in of being adopted into this family, what does he begin to do? He begins to wonder about his people. So he ventures out, and he goes into the Israelite camps where they are being being enslaved, where they are told to do crazy amounts of manual labor, where they are being abused, where they are being persecuted, being tortured. And he goes into it, and he sees an Egyptian beating up on, uh, to the the point of death, an Israelite. And what does he do? He steps in because that's my people. And I'm, I know I'm in the prince, I'm in the palace, but, I'm, but these are my people also. And he's wrestling with this idea and who he is and what he's supposed to do. And, how he's, and he knows he's a deliverer. This is just something that's in Moses. And he steps in and tries to do it his way and he ends up killing the Egyptian. Then he goes back a little later. And he sees two Israelites fighting, and he begins to stop it. And they say, what are you going to do? you Are going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And Moses, his identity is destroyed. And he takes off because what he said he was going to do, what he thought he was going to do, he didn't do well, and he didn't do it right, and somehow he messed it up. And now they look at him, and now he can't be this, and he can't be that, and he's completely lost, and he takes off into the desert. We pick up on the story that, that Donnie wrote, read, and, and what is he doing? He's taking care of someone else's sheep. This is not a rags-to-riches story. This is a riches-to-rags story. This is someone who was in the palace who ends up in the pasture. And he's watching someone else's sheep. He, is, he has nothing. He grew up in well, He grew up with everything at his fingertips. And now he's in the desert 40 years later. Yeah, there's a theme here. We're in 40 days of Lent, mirroring the 40 days of Jesus in the, in the desert. And here we are with Moses 40 years and then another 40 years, and for 40 years he has forgotten, or at least tried to forget, what had happened back there in Israel, back in Egypt, sorry. And he's wrestling with this, and then he says that he takes the, he takes the sheep into a deep wilderness, out into Mount Sinai, like this is, this is big time stuff. And Moses is way out in the desert, probably took him a little further than he needed to. How many of you know desert places are listening places? You understand that, 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 um, that, 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 that sometimes the desert moments in your life are not there to destroy you. They're actually there to strip away all the things that could distract you. And you may not like it, and I understand that. But sometimes those desert moments are moments for you to be developed what's happening to Moses is the, the riches of the palace have been stripped away. And even what he thought he was called to do has been stripped away. And now he's coming into the desert and something's about to happen in his life. And it's 40 years later. He's being prepared to be a deliverer. Moses still thinking about Israel, still thinking about all these other things. And he comes up to Really, this is a really important moment. In fact, one theologian would say that this is like the pivotal moment. This is the pivot point in the Bible, a hinge on which the door of sacred history swings. Another commentator says this, indeed, until the epiphany of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the most awesome theophany, which just means a physical manifestation of God on the earth in the history of redemption. I say that because it is the beginning of the main act of redemption in the Old Testament. Namely, God's liberation of his people from the house of bondage. Yes, God had appeared and spoken to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, thus inaugurating the covenant partnership between God and Israel. But all of Israel's history will be focused on the history-changing action of God in the Exodus. And that massive moment of God begins here at the burning bush when God called Moses to be God's man, God's mouth, God's mediator in in the drama of salvation. This is a rebirth, this is a renewal for Moses. Moses is just tending sheep, and he shows up and he sees a burning bush. I wanted to show you something, I think this is really cool, not that one, uh, but I want to show you this picture of of the burning bush. This is actually to this day still in in existence. This is St. Catherine's Monastery, Uh, it's in the Sinai Peninsula, it's at the base of Mount Sinai. And this has been around since the Byzantine Empire. This monastery has been there forever. Now, it's in the middle of nowhere. So to protect it, they built a pretty thick, strong fortress around it. And this is said to be, now I don't know, and most likely not, but this is said to be, sorry, the burning bush. This is said to be the, the, the bush that God spoke from to speak to Moses. Now, what are they trying to do when they commemorate the burning bush? What are they trying to They're trying to keep something Sacred. Right? Now, there are monks who still live there. In fact, you rarely can come back behind into this area. Uh, They're trying, again, to keep it sacred. They're trying to do their best to remind people. I think it's wild that that's still happening, that it's still going on, that there's still a monastery still happening, and there's still people working it and has been happening through all kinds of empires, all kinds of kings, all throughout history. These people have been here protecting the burning bush. Now, why is this so important? Because this is a moment that the deliverer is delivered. This is the moment that Moses comes across a burning bush, and it actually says this. I think this is important. Moses notices the burning bush. Now, he was not praying. He was not seeking the Lord. He was not, like, having a moment with God. He wasn't trying to, like, seek the Lord's purpose. He was just, he might have been, maybe he was praying, but we don't know that. We don't actually know what Moses is doing at this point. We just know he's way out in the desert. And he comes to this place where he sees something far off, and he notices that this bush is burning but not burnt. And this is the way God works, that you would be consumed, right, but not destroyed. You You would become people who are burning but not burnt up. This is what a beautiful thing that God does where he does not make you lose yourself, but he does, like the Holy Spirit, begin to do something in you that cannot be explained any other way. And so Moses notices it. In every single translation of this story, you will see a distinct moment where Moses notices the burning bush. One preacher I listened to this week said this, you know, if it was Pharaoh, I'm not sure he would have noticed the bush. Moses had been stripped down to the point where all he had was his sheep, and the wilderness. And in the wilderness, God showed up in the form of a burning bush. The other night, I was with, um, I was with, uh, I, well, I just put the boys to bed, and I could hear my dog, my puppy, uh, barking, and I didn't know why. And it was a different bark. It wasn't like a normal bark. It was kind of a crazy bark. And, um, and so I go out there, and I tell him to be quiet it's late at night, and, uh, and he's being annoying, so I'm telling him to be quiet. So I go back inside. He stops. Then he goes back out, and he starts barking again, the same kind of bark. I go back out there. I tell him to be quiet, and he doesn't. He keeps barking. So I go back out there, and it wasn't until the third time that I noticed what he was barking at. There was a possum frozen on the top of our fence. Listen, the burning bush is not the reason this, this story is important. The reason this story is important is because God did something to bark. He did something so that Moses would notice something is different. He did something to notice. And we have a challenge sometimes noticing the sacred moments in our life. One of the things we have been desensitized to is the idea that in everyday life, God is burning in different moments throughout your day. And that he is trying to get your attention. And if I can get my notes to go back, I'll read this to you. It's a beautiful poem. Because do we, do we believe that that's the burning bush? Probably not. Probably not. But maybe that's not what's important here. Maybe what's important here is that there are bushes everywhere. There are moments everywhere. And God is often breathing on them. And we have gotten so desensitized to the voice of the Holy Spirit in our life sometimes. Well, he couldn't be asking I couldn't be, you know. And God is going, dude, it is on fire. What do you want me to do? Elizabeth Barrett Browning, bit of a mystic poet, lived a couple hundred years ago, a hundred years ago, says this, earth crammed with heaven and every common bush of fire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. The earth is crammed with it. So Moses takes notice. And where can you take notice of sacred things? Where can you take notice of holy moments? Where have we missed those things? And God's like shaping us and been preparing for us. And he's, he's going, no, this is on fire. You need to take notice. Please take notice. Please, 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 please take notice. And the moment Moses takes notice, he hears a voice. Moses, Moses. He says, here I am. Clearly Moses is like, I ain't got nothing. Ain't nobody going to see me talk back to this bush. My brother one time, the neighbors from the, the from the second floor of their house, uh, they were older than us, about 10, 15 years older than us, and we're walking around. I think we're 9, 10 years old, um, and we're walking down the street, and they start yelling, Bryce, Bryce. He's like, what? It's the tree. My brother has a five-minute conversation with a tree. Sometimes, sometimes, listen, Sometimes the mundane things are meant to turn into miracles if we would simply take notice and let God's voice speak. And he comes and he takes notice of the burning bush. And the Lord says something that's really interesting. He says something really, really fascinating. He says, please take off your sandals. We're helping somebody move. By the way, they had their baby this week. Will and Angelica had their baby, little baby boy. And they, and they had their baby. We were, move, we were helping move some stuff at their house the other day, and I noticed when I walked in a whole shelf of shoes. And so I asked the question, "Should I take off my shoes?" And she said, "No." And I was like, "Okay, I won't." But I took off my shoes last night. And Meredith was like, "Can you put them back on, please?" God says, God says to Moses, "Hey, would you take off your sandals?" There's a couple things happening here. Has anybody ever wondered why that was significant? Why do, why do I got to take my sandals off, man? I'm in the desert. I don't know, rocks and stuff are out here. There's a point where God says, no, 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 don't tell me any closer. There's all the holiness. Everything that God was was consumed in this moment. It's like getting too close to the sun. All the source of life, everything was here. And God says, okay, hold on, hold on. Stay right there. I love you. I don't want to, I don't want to, like, hurt you. So stay where you're at. And then I want you to take your sandals off. Just you to take your sandals off? Because you're on holy ground. You're on holy ground. Was the ground holy? Or was God so holy that he made the ground holy? What is holy? It means different. That's the easiest way to say it. There's a lot more wrapped up into it, but it it just simply means that it's different. That something is different. To be holy is is not so much to be... Well, sorry, I'm going to read the wrong quote here. The The word for holy is hagios, whose root meaning is different. The temple is different because it is different from other buildings. The Sabbath is different because it is different from other days. The Christian is different because he is different from other people. That ground was different. Why? Because it was different than all the other ground. Why? Was it actually different? Was the ground actually different? No. It was only different. Why? Because the God who makes it different was present. It says take off your sandals. A couple things happening. One, because it was holy. So take off the dirt and the stuff from your past. Leave it on the outside of the circle and come in. Don't bring that stuff in here. Not because I'm scared of it, but because that is not for you. In my presence, no. Mm-mm, no. Leave it out there. You come close to me, come close and leave your junk on the outside. Not because I can't deal with it, but because I don't want you dealing with it. When you come into my presence... That stuff's burned away. Get away from it. Stay off of it. Move away from it. The other way is this: because in many traditions, taking off your shoes is a sign of what? Respect for the place you are entering. It is a sign of, 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 of honor and saying I'm stepping into this and I'm not tracking in everything because this is an important place and space. So it, it's think about it. I want you to think about it. when we would walk into a home, we take off our shoes. It's honoring the place you're walking into, but it's also because you've been invited to the place. There's an element here of hospitality that God is showing to Moses, saying, come in to this space. Come into this holy moment. Come into this sacred ground. Come into this place, because your life is going to be different. You can keep praying for the people of Israel. You can keep praying for the change for the people of Israel. But here's what I'm going to do first. I'm going to change you. Isn't that how it happens? God, would you just change my city? Yes. Come in here. God, I want you to just change my family. Okay, come in here. Because I'm going to deliver you so that you can deliver them. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to bring you into a holy moment. I'm going to bring you into this holy ground. Jesus does this, right? Jesus walks through the city streets and all of a sudden, Everywhere he steps his foot becomes a little more sacred. He walks up to the blind man. That becomes a holy moment. He walks up to the lame man, Beth- Bethsaida. It becomes a holy moment. He walks into the house. And all these people cram in. He starts healing people, teaching the word of God, which is himself. and And that becomes a holy moment. Jesus walked the earth and made everything sacred. Every time he stepped, more sacred. Every time he stepped, more holy. Every time he stepped, it became more and more what God expected and wanted it to become. This is the beauty of walking with God. Why does he say, you be holy as I am holy? Because you are holy. H-W-H-O-L-L-Y. You are holy, different. When you come into Christ, you walk the earth with a sense of the sacred. You walk into your day with a sense of the holy things. You walk into your day with the sense that this is holy. And there are holy moments to be had and sacred moments to be had. And it's not always scheduled. But if he breathed in you, you're sacred. If he shaped you, you're sacred. You are set apart. You are wholly different. And God's reminding us oh please, be holy as I am holy. Brian Zahn says this, the word for holy, or sorry guys, y'all, need to use different color highlights. To be holy is not so much to be good in a moralistic sense, it definitely has that element to it, but to be other. The conservative shouts line up on the right, while the progressive shouts line up on the left. Meanwhile, Jesus calls us to something other, something that cannot be plotted on a left to right grid. You are made distinct. And there's this transition that happens from the first testament of God to the second testament of God, where, where it goes from a place of being holy places. What does Peter say later on in his letter? That you are a holy priesthood. You are something different. You are a priesthood in the earth. As the people of God, you are meant to walk into a place, bless it, serve it, treat it as sacred, where other people are treating it as profane. Apply this to any hot-button topic in the world right now. Treat it as sacred, not profane. Treat your relationships as sacred. The Bible says Jesus says to say, whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. Make it all holy. Make every bit of it sacred. There's an element of holiness in our life, absolutely. But what does it take to be holy? God's presence. To be holy, different, set apart, is to have the Holy Spirit breathing in us, creating in us a sense, a difference, a new way of doing life. And T. Wright says that, that we must participate in this holiness. We must participate in this thing that Paul is calling us to. It's almost as though when you're called into this life, it requires a difference in you. How many of you know that Moses, when he walked away, put his sandals on a little differently? He looked at his sheep a little differently because he has this whole discussion with God about what's coming next. He has this whole discussion with God about what's about to happen. And he wrestles with his identity and he wrestles with, who he is and what he's allowed to do and what he can do and what he can't do and he's questioning all the things I can't possibly be the one I killed that Egyptian I can't possibly be the one I'm watching sheep I can't be the deliverer that I thought I was and God is saying would you stop because what you did before was in your own strength now I'm trying to show you that wherever I am with you it is holy ground and you the people of God it's holy. There is a sacred us. This is sacred. This is wholly different. And it is not so much that I, by myself, am the holiness of God. This is the burning bush in the earth today. This is the holy ground. This is the holy people. We walk out of this place, we are still, as the body of Christ, the holy priesthood, something different on the earth. So my question to you today, where have you missed the sacred? Where have we treated things that are meant to be sacred as mundane? Emile Durkheim actually says this in his writings about the sacred and the profane he says as things get more progressive as, as secularism takes over what will not happen is that sacred and profane will disappear he says that's not what's going to happen well, it, it won't that will not be the end result the end result is not that as we get more secular and more progressive and more understanding more intellectual that somehow those things will disappear religion will go and all of a sudden the sacred and profane distinction will disappear he says no, no no what will happen is we will simply transfer that to other things We will simply make the humanistic viewpoint more sacred. We we, we are on a search for the sacred things in life, every single one of us. Our culture is too. What are we defining as sacred? Because from what we define as sacred will be the behaviors and the way in which we live. And God says, this is holy ground. What have we missed? What have we allowed to become more secular rather than more sacred? What if we allowed to become more earthy instead of heavenly? Where can we be people who take this holy moment, take it into holy moments and recognize the burning bushes all around us? And where have we allowed certain things in our walk with Christ to become mundane, to become profane, to not give them the respect they deserve? For some of us, we need to check our hearts and go, you know what? I love that Breaking down the wall, but have I allowed actually these things that I know have such a deep, deep well in them, and I've allowed them to move over here instead of bringing everything that's happening on my street, in my workplace, in my family, and my friendships into the sacredness of life and realizing that, man, when things have a value to them that cannot be bought, life becomes more free, more whole. Redemption happens. What has been destroyed is restored. Beauty for ashes. Garments of praise for despair. Oil of joy. That is what God is desiring to do. Why don't you stand with me? We're going to sing, pretty sure we're going to sing Holy Ground. I mean, it only makes sense. And I want you to let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. And, um, why don't you do this with me? Lord, I, I, just lift your hands to heaven. Lord, I thank you so much. Thank you so much for today. That this is a sacred moment. That gathering together here every week is sacred, it's holy. It's something you're speaking to our hearts about today. And will we take notice? Will we turn our attention? Get away from the other things. Move into the desert places and allow you to speak to our hearts. God, I pray right now. Holy Spirit, would you speak? give you 30 seconds before Donnie starts singing. I just want you to ask the Holy Spirit Lord, would bring the sacred back into my life. The things that I've allowed to become profane, God, let, them, let me add the value that you have for them. People. Relationships. Prayer. God, let me allow the sacred things to be sacred. And in fact, invite the rest of the world into
0: Thanks,